My name is Stuart Merrill, and I woke up this gay. Episode 10.1, That Crazy Foreign Woman, Part 1. As you may have noticed, I rewrote and re-recorded Episode 10, That Crazy Foreign Woman. Now it's too long, though, so I've decided to divide it into two episodes, 10.1 and 10.2. I put a great deal of love into rewriting these two episodes about my mom, and intentionally recorded them on my birthday. My mom not only gave me life, but then she saved my life by teaching me to love myself and ignore all the Mormon voices around me trying to convince me I was dirty and disgusting because I'm a queer. Please have a listen and tell me what you think. That Crazy Foreign Woman, Part 1 My mom's family came with its own very interesting backstory. Her mother, my babushka, who we called Wawi, was born in Bligiviesinsk, then a small town in southeastern Siberia on the Amur River, which divides Russia from China. Wawi was a beautiful woman with a Gibson girl face. Her kind and gentle nature was reflected in her unusually large, round, powder-blue eyes, those lovely eyes that were so quintessentially Russian. She was a very small woman in stature, with the presence of an old-world aristocrat. She was far too much of a lady to ever intentionally draw attention to herself. But in spite of that, well, actually, maybe because of that, her presence filled any room she entered. Her father, my great-grandfather, was a Russian Orthodox archbishop who also ran the local gymnasium or high school. Under normal circumstances, married priests with children are never promoted to archbishop in the Russian Orthodox faith. However, during the revolution, all the archbishops were arrested and many of them murdered. In spite of the obvious danger, my great-grandfather accepted the promotion, sealing his fate and his family's. His specialty seemed to have been something to do with the law, and he had some diplomatic responsibilities as well, primarily in Manchuria, present-day China, but he also helped to negotiate the end of the Russo-Japanese War. One of his interns, then a Japanese law student, would go on to save his daughter, my grandmother, from imprisonment as an illegal alien in Yokohama, Japan, when she escaped the Russian Revolution. My great-grandfather obviously came from a well-established family, though I always imagined somebody in the family before him must have really pissed off someone important to have been sent to such a remote outpost of the Russian Empire. They were quite wealthy and very well-educated. My babushka spoke five languages, though if you asked her, she said she could only speak three foreign languages. French, she always insisted, doesn't count as a foreign language. French was the language of Russian gentry, aristocracy, and even Russian parliament. Everyone speaks French, she always declared. Russian was spoken in the streets, French was spoken at home, Chinese was spoken with the servants, and of course everyone had to speak German because the Tsarina was from Germany. Lastly, when she escaped to Canada, she learned to speak English with this charming Russian accent that always sounded like home to my ears. When prominent Russians, various dignitaries, actors, or government officials traveled through that part of Russia on the Trans-Siberian Railroad, they would often stay with my grandmother's family. She loved to tell me the story of meeting Russia's most famous actor when she was a little girl, the same famous actor who built the banya in Moscow where I met my boyfriend, Kostya. There were five children in her family, four daughters, and the youngest child was the only son, just like in the Tsar's family. My grandmother and her siblings were also around the same age as the Tsar's five children. My auntie Lu, who came from the same town, told me they were jokingly referred to as the royal family of Little Bligivyshinsk. 
And like the Tsar, they owned what was likely the only camera in that part of the world at the time. We have some magnificent photos of them from the 1910s at home in Russia and traveling in China. Any film they used had to be sent via the Trans-Siberian Railroad back to Moscow to be developed, and it took weeks for them to receive their photos. While we rarely talked about her childhood, it may have been too difficult for her to remember. It was Auntie Lou who told me stories about Blikivyashinsk and my babushka's family. Auntie Lou and her husband were Wawi and my grandfather Bobby's best friends. They had no children, and perhaps that's why Auntie Lou seemed to take a special interest in me. When Mum and I were living with my Aunt Kira, my mother's sister in British Columbia, I could see into Auntie Lou's apartment from my bedroom window across the school playground that separated us. Auntie Lou could also see into ours. Whenever she sensed any trouble brewing, she called my mum and told her she needed me to come over and run errands for her, which always consisted of her giving me a $5 bill and telling me to go to the corner store and buy whatever I wanted. In Russia, Luba's family had tended reindeer and sold reindeer milk. They had special leather gloves for carrying frozen blocks of milk that she and her siblings delivered around town. She knew of my grandmother, but they didn't become friends until they both escaped to Canada. Of course, she wasn't my real aunt, but since we had no living Russian relatives, we always called her auntie. My favorite was Auntie Lou's story of Wawi sitting in the front row watching a touring opera company with her many suitors sitting around her buying for her attention. She wore a light blue bow of the exact color of those lovely Russian eyes. When I asked Wawi about this, she simply said, Well, I had to sit in the front row. I was blind as a bat and we couldn't get glasses during the revolution. The Russian Revolution reached the Russian Far East a couple years after it broke out in European Russia. When it did, Wawi's mother died of a heart attack. One sister, Valya, married a Bolshevik, and the other two sisters were sent to teach in Moscow. Their father was arrested and would die 5,000 miles away in the Baltics after spending years walking from one prison to the next. This left only Wawi and her brother at home, and they both knew he was about to be conscripted by the Bolshevik army. It would have been a capital offense had he been caught trying to escape Russia, so they decided Wawi would be the one to take advantage of an offer to escape to Canada. The offer came from their father's best friend, who was the postmaster, and even though he was a Bolshevik, he did what he could to look after his best friend's children after my great-grandfather was arrested. He knew of a man who would arrange and pay for Wawi to escape through China, Korea, and Japan, and then on to Vancouver, Canada. Years later, when I was living in Moscow, a woman from the Swiss Red Cross told me Wawi was not only the one member of her family to escape, but she was also the only member of her family to survive the revolution and the purges. I chose not to relay this information to my mum or her sister Aunt Kira. I'm sure they knew, but I did not want to be the one to give them definitive confirmation. Actually, the lady from the Red Cross told me our relatives officially never existed in spite of the fact that we have photos of them. I would come to learn the hard way when my boyfriend Kostya was murdered. The phrase officially never existed was a sort of Soviet euphemism, meaning they were disappeared, murdered, and all records of their existence were disappeared with them. My conversation with the Swiss lady from the Red Cross had to be quite cryptic as I was accompanied by my stukachnik, Sergei, the communist informant who had been assigned to keep an eye on me. As I left, though, she whispered to me in German that I should visit her office in Zurich. Sadly, I lost her contact information, so I never had the opportunity to do so. 
We know one of Huawei's cousins and her husband, a Russian count, did manage to escape to either Brazil or Australia, but we were never able to find them. Other than that, all four generations of my grandmother's family were lost. The man who paid for my grandmother's escape would become my grandfather, Bobby. He was older than Huawei and came from the opposite corner of the Russian Empire in Arkhangelsk, a port town in the northwest corner of Russia near the border with Finland. At the age of 14, on his way home from boarding school one weekend, he was shanghaied, kidnapped to serve in the merchant marines. He came of age sailing around the world in indentured servitude on a Russian merchant ship. After some years, he and a friend decided to jump ship in Vancouver. However, right before doing so, his friend changed his mind and instead turned in my grandfather. Bobby jumped overboard alone and swam to what was then Forest and is now the city of North Vancouver. He hid under a fallen tree while his shipmates searched for him, but he was never found. Ironically, that very forest would become the source of his fortune, a fortune he would later lose in the Depression. By the time the Russian Revolution broke out, he had established himself in Vancouver's lumber industry. He acquired the lumber rights to what is now the city of North Vancouver and literally harvested the trees that had saved his life when he jumped ship. It was at that time he arranged and paid for the escape of some 50 Russian refugees to cities up and down the Pacific coast from Vancouver to Los Angeles. Many of these people became our surrogate relatives, including Auntie Lou and my mum's godmother, Zoya, who was the first prop mistress at United Artists Studios. She had this fabulous little house in Beverly Hills totally furnished with furniture from Rudolph Valentino movies, her favorite movie star and a personal friend of hers. You see, even then, the things that impressed me were so totally gay. I mean, Rudolph Valentino sets for furniture? How fabulous is that? As a child, I was fascinated with my Russian family's history, whereas my father's equally interesting Mormon heritage was somehow more of an obstacle I had to survive. My mum was brilliant. She was a little crazy, though, and she could at times be very difficult. She most certainly did not play the role of the meek Mormon matriarch as Utah society demanded she must. She decided what she wanted accomplished, used the tools she had to achieve her aims, and broke any rigid social rules that got in the way of reaching her goals. She was notoriously successful, and as I'm sure is often the case for powerful women in such a chauvinistic society as Utah in the mid-20th century, she was quite lonely and not terribly happy. The fact that mom was always the smartest, best educated, best looking, and by far the best dressed person in every room did not exactly ingratiate her to the Mormon natives. Women hated her, and men were terrified of her. Everyone from my dad's cousin, the governor on down, knew her well enough to admire and fear her. She was cunning, quick-witted, and had a very sharp tongue. If your family had a skeleton in its closet, mum knew about it, and it seemed everyone owed her at least one favor. When debating one of our relatives, the governor's son, he made the mistake of personally insulting my mother on stage. She said, Tony... Your father is a gifted politician, and he raised you to know better than to personally insult your opponent in a debate. Then she brushed the microphone to one side with the back of her hand, leaned in, and said, But since you've crossed the line, you won't remember this. But when your father was first running for governor, I used to babysit you. I've changed your diaper many times, and I know exactly why you're such an insecure little man.
For a woman in misogynistic Mormondom in the 1950s and 60s, my mom accomplished some truly amazing things. Patterned after Leonard Bernstein of the New York Philharmonic, Mum established a program busing schoolchildren from all over Utah to introduce them to the performing arts, life theater, ballet, opera, and symphony orchestra. This program was so successful, she helped it go national. In a documentary about the opera diva and icon Leona Mitchell, the interviewer asked Ms. Mitchell how a young black girl from Oklahoma could have ever discovered opera. She said her initial introduction to opera was through my mother's program. This program created an opera audience which was later credited with saving opera in America and is responsible not just for many, but most of today's opera stars. She successfully lobbied to increase state and federal education budgets, and on her watch, Utah's public school budget was the envy of the nation. She lobbied for Utah to be the 34th and final state to pass the Equal Rights Amendment, a constitutional amendment that would have guaranteed equal rights for women had they succeeded. She was also one of the founding members of a secret society of powerful Utah women called the Clarifiers. The Clarifiers were a clandestine cabal of women who employed very creative, effective, but not always above-board tactics to achieve their goals. They rescued children, wives, and the occasional puppy from unfortunate circumstances by coming up with extremely creative ways to either extricate the victim or to remove the unfortunate part of the circumstance. The hallmark of the clarifiers was that they left no calling card, no fingerprints, no evidence of any kind, only positive results. I wish I had more information about the clarifiers, and if there are any other kids of clarifiers who do know more about them, please contact me. I have no doubt Mum accomplished many more things we'll never know about, in a society like Utah, though, it's never a good idea to draw too much attention to yourself, especially if you're a woman. But Mum couldn't help it. Her theory was there are just some people who cannot live life unnoticed, even if they want to. They didn't do anything right, they didn't do anything wrong, that's just the way it is. Some people are always noticed, talked about, and judged. They have to pay the price socially, whether they take advantage of the benefits or not. So, she always told me, you might as well take advantage of it as long as you use it for good. In general, Utahns don't really approve of anyone who is even a little bit different, or as they patronizingly pronounce it, different. Russians, on the other hand, believe you should show off your eccentric individuality for everyone to admire. Do you see the conflict here? Russians believe there is nothing worse than being a banal carbon copy of everybody else and Mormons hate anyone they perceive as even slightly different. Frankly, Mormons have built-in social punishment for anyone foolish enough to try to be different. Growing up, Mum and I had our conflicts. We yelled a lot, we cried a lot, each for our own reasons. But most of the time, it seemed we were a team, especially after Dad left. It was Mum and I against that ludicrous Mormon world around us. All in all, we were a damn good team, too, and our goal was to simply survive Utah. Mum had done the best she could to raise her first three children as a good converted Mormon housewife should. When I was born a few years later, though, she must have decided, this one's mine, and she tried to raise me the way she had been raised. She went to great lengths to expose me to various cultures, languages, and literature, and we traveled throughout Europe together. I was a mama's boy, and she raised me to appreciate and respect the people outside of our highly regulated cultish Mormon patriarchy. 
Mum had studied opera at the Royal Toronto Conservatory of Music and had a stunning coloratura soprano voice. She was often engaged to sing at bar mitzvahs and churches of all denominations in and around Salt Lake City. She would bring me along to expose me to other religions, cultures, and ways of thinking. Mum saw to it I knew how to behave properly and with respect for those whose worlds were very different from ours. She wanted me to be confident and comfortable everywhere, at an opera ball in Europe, a bat mitzvah in Brooklyn, or a potluck barbecue in the Ozarks. She harbored in me the confidence that I would find a place where I would not be treated as an outsider. Though in my childhood, this mythical place often felt more like a fantasy. I don't think I would have even survived my childhood, though, had my mum not convinced me to ignore the hateful lies Mormons told about all outsiders, especially about gays. I came so close to being just another Mormon child or teenager who took my own life because the Mormons tried to convince me I was evil and disgusting. I wouldn't even be here had my mom not promised me that once I survived and got out of Utah, I would find a wonderful world full of people who loved and appreciated me for who I am. My mother gave me my life twice. Most of what I love in my life, and most of what I'm proud to have achieved, came as a direct result of my mum and the way she raised me. During one of mum's and my trips around Europe, we found ourselves in a wonderful outdoor cafe on Lake Zurich. We were speaking Russian and English, and at the table next to us were two rather uppity French-speaking ladies who were staring at us and quite obviously talking about us. Mind you, Zurich is in the German-speaking part of Switzerland, where the French are not exactly well-loved. Thus, we were not the only people in this establishment who found the presence of these aggressively arrogant French women rather irritating. I asked my mum, who speaks French, what they were saying about us. After a short silence, she said, Don't worry about it, but watch this. She walked up to them, said loudly enough for everyone to hear, and in English, the language she knew everyone would understand. I couldn't help but notice the two of you staring at my son and me. I'm just curious. Is it my handsome son or my lovely Chanel suit? She did a pirouette, bowed, and returned to our table. The entire restaurant broke out into uproarious laughter. Then our beaming waitress brought us two pieces of chocolate herrentorte, and while looking at the French ladies, loudly proclaimed, This is on the house. That same evening, we were catching a train from Zurich to Florence, Italy. We had reserved sleepers in car 119. We walked down the platform and we found 117, 118, 120. There was no 119. We asked the conductor for help, but he just dramatically gesticulated while yelling at us in Italian and pushed us out of his way. Mum calmly asked me to pick up our bags and follow her to the front of the train. Get down on the tracks, she commanded. Oh lord, I thought, here we go. I knew better than to talk back, so I did what I was told. Here, take the bags, put them on the tracks in front of the train, and sit down on them. The Italian conductor went berserk. Mum waited until he had calmed himself enough to listen to her, and she explained. Switzerland is a very civilized country. I'm certain sleeping in a Swiss jail will be much warmer than sleeping on a bench in the train station, so you will either find our first-class sleepers or have us arrested. Either one is fine with us. He found our sleeper car. When I was doing my internship in Moscow at the Gerasimov All-Soviet Government Institute of Film, Geek for short, Mum would occasionally call me at the Institute in one of my professor's offices since we had no phones in the dorms. 
One day, as I'm having a chat with my mom in Russian, the professor walked in and kept moving closer and closer to the phone and finally said, give me that phone. He spoke with my mom for quite a while. After the conversation was over, he said, unbelievable, your mother speaks perfect 19th century aristocratic Russian. It's the Russian language in a refrigerator. The next time she calls, I want to record it so I can play it for my students to hear. The flip side of this issue was when I returned to America after living in Moscow, she heard me speaking Russian and said, Боже мой, мой сын говорит по-русски как крестьянин. Oh my God, my son speaks Russian like a peasant. <laughs> it's true, my mom was a huge snob, but she always laughed when I teased her about it. I just reminded her of one of my favorite quotes from Boris Pasternak. Scratch a Russian, and you'll find a peasant. The things everyone absolutely adored about my mom in Europe were the very same things they abhorred in Utah. My name is Stuart Merrill, and I woke up this gay. The second half of this episode, That Crazy Foreign Woman Part 2, is coming up in Episode 10.2.